First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19. Uh, Yesterday uh, was just such a beautiful day uh, here in Melbourne, wasn't it? Just a gorgeous day outside, had a a good time in the morning, went and saw uh, my my son uh, wrap up his baseball season, Uh, came home, knocked out uh, some some yard work, it was a great day to do that, Uh, got to spend some time with some friends and my parents, got to do some swimming, Got to play some, uh, some pickup football in the yard. Just a great day, a very peaceful day. Uh, until all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was something that just started causing a lot of commotion. And uh, just, it was definitely loud. And uh, every few minutes, the ground would start to shake. And if you were here yesterday, if you were in town and you were outside at all, uh, you could not have missed it, right? What am I talking about? The air show, right? And it, and it did cause a commotion. Now, I, I believe it was a, a good commotion. Uh, it, it was awesome to see. I don't know how those pilots can, can fly like that and, and do that. And just, just amazing. I, I feel privileged every year, just about, we get to see that show here. And you don't even really have to go down to the airport, right? You can just kind of go outside and get a lawn chair and, and, and you can see it. And I, and I really don't know who wouldn't like that, that commotion, who wouldn't like that, unless maybe, I don't know if you were... Uh, trying to take a nap on a hammock yesterday or something, you know, and every time they flew by, it, it woke you up. But, but I'm sure there were some people who didn't like it. Some people didn't like the sound of the planes and just wanted some peace and quiet. You know, it, it's always like that with, with something that causes a commotion. There's always some people who like it, some people who like the excitement, and there's other people who just want things to stay the same. They just want the status quo, In this story in the Bible that was just read for us, Paul is preaching the gospel in the city of Ephesus. And I think you would agree that uh, what Paul does there and the message of Jesus he brings to that city, it causes quite a commotion. In fact, Luke says so. If you look at verse 23, he says, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way, which is one of the terms they use to refer to Believers, followers of the way of the Lord Jesus. But he says a great commotion was happening. And there is a lot of commotion in this chapter. And in this one story, right, you have uh, people who get stripped and beaten up by a demon. Uh, You've got a huge bonfire, book fire going on, right, in the middle of the streets of the city. You've got a a mob that forms and begins to uh, chant for two hours the same thing. There, there, there is a, a lot of commotion going on here. Jesus causes quite a stir. Uh, as the title of the message this morning says, he upsets the apple cart. And Jesus always does that. I'm sure many of us are familiar with the story of when Jesus went into the temple and flipped over the tables of the money changers. He caused quite a stir that day too. And listen, the reality is wherever Jesus goes, wherever the message of Jesus goes, uh, he's going to cause quite a stir. When when Jesus comes to an individual person's life, uh, he's going to flip over a table or two. Now, friend, didn't he do that in your life when he came into your life? I know he did that when he came into mine. When Jesus comes to a church, when Jesus comes to a city, he flips over some tables. He causes a ruckus. And of course, just like what happened in this story, not everybody welcomes it. 
But we who know the Lord Jesus, of course, should welcome the commotion that Jesus brings because we know that the status quo is broken. We know that things need to change. We don't want things to stay the same. We want the Lord to come and shake things up with his holy fire. And hopefully that's the prayer that's in our hearts today. We're asking the Lord Jesus, come and shake things up in my life and shake things up in our church and shake things up in the city of Melbourne and even shake things up in our nation. And with that prayer in our hearts, as we walk through this story together, I, wanna, I want us to discover together four surefire signs that Jesus is doing just that, that he's causing a commotion right where you and I live. Here, here's the first sign that a commotion is starting to happen. You're going to see persuasion. You're going to see the word of God beginning to be preached everywhere. And just as a reminder of where we are, we're walking uh, this year as a church, line by line, through this wonderful book of Acts. It's the story of the early church, how they took the good news of Jesus all over the known world. The man we're talking about right now, we know him as the Apostle Paul, he used to be known as Saul, and he was the number one terrorist and enemy of the early church until he met Jesus Christ. God so transformed him that today we consider Paul the greatest missionary who ever lived. Now he's on his third missionary trip. He's made it to the great city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, what is today Turkey, Last week, we read about when he first came to town, he met these 12 disciples of John the Baptist. They hadn't heard the full story of Jesus. They hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit, but Paul preached Jesus to them. They believed, they were saved, they were baptized. And these 12, the Ephesus 12, became uh, some of the first believers in this church at Ephesus. Well, after that, Paul continues his ministry in Ephesus, and he actually continues it for a long, long time. In fact, altogether, Paul stays in the city of Ephesus for a period of three years. It's the longest period of time that Paul ever stayed in any one place during these missionary trips. And the ministry he had there was an incredible ministry. As we're going to see, it ended up affecting the entire region around the city of Ephesus. Well, like always, Paul starts in the Jewish synagogue. If you look in verse 8, it says, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And so Paul reasoned with him and he persuaded them. Now hang on to those two words. We're going to come back to them in just a minute. But you'll notice that Paul actually uh, got to share with the folks in this synagogue for a longer duration of time than almost anywhere else. In most cities he went to, he only made it a week or two or three in the synagogue before he got uh, run out of there. Here he's able to make it three months before that happens. And so by that time, a number of people have put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And so when Paul is forced to leave the synagogue, he takes all of these brand new Christians with him and he sets up shop, verse 9 says, in the school of Tyrannus. Now, we're not actually sure who this man Tyrannus was. He might have been the owner of this hall, this building, or he might have been a philosopher who gave his lectures inside of that building. If, if the latter is the case, it's probably his students who gave him the nickname Tyrannus, because that name literally means my tyrant. 
And I can't imagine too many mamas who would have given their boy that, that name. Uh, so most likely it was his students who called him that. And Paul was giving lectures and preaching in this hall, and most likely between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. Because during that window of time in that part of the world, that was the time that everybody stopped working and it was time for everyone to take their afternoon siesta. And apparently the, the hall of Tyrannus was available for Paul to use during that middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. And some people were willing to skip their afternoon nap and come and hear Paul preach about Jesus. And you can just imagine how many people over the span of two years heard about Jesus in the school of Tyrannus from Paul and how many of them came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look in verse 10, I love the way it describes the impact of Paul's ministry. It says, and this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and and Greeks, all who dwelled in Asia, in the whole region. And that doesn't mean that Paul individually, personally shared with every single person, but it does mean that those who heard Paul, those who came to faith in Christ because of uh, his preaching, went out from there. They even went out to the surrounding communities, surrounding cities, and shared about Christ. One of them likely was this man named Epaphras. We read about elsewhere in Scripture. He went to the city of Colossae and planted a church there. During this time, Paul wrote his letter that we call Colossians to the church in that city, even though Paul never personally visited that city. In fact, during these two years that Paul was in Ephesus, it's likely that most, if not all, of the seven churches that we read about in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 were planted during this window of time. And so Paul's impact in these years didn't just change a city, it ended up affecting and changing an entire region. But don't miss how that happened. Don't miss what Paul and his co-workers did. Again, the text says they reasoned and they persuaded from the word of God. And they did that every day for two years. I am not sure that most believers today think about that as something that we all need to be doing, reasoning and persuading unbelievers to trust in Christ. I think that most believers today think, you know, I probably had better just kind of keep my beliefs to myself because if I don't, it might upset people. It might upset the apple cart and I don't really want to do that. It's safer to just kind of be quiet about it. And perhaps a few others might go so far as to say, well, you know, I invited them to church, you know, I mean, I just kind of have to leave it there. What else can I do? Uh, or, you know, I left a, a track on the table. What else can I do? And, and when I say that, listen, hear my heart. I'm not disparaging leaving tracks on tables. Many people have been saved because of tracks that were picked up off a table. Many people have been saved because of a simple invitation to come to church or come to a place where they're going to hear about Jesus. But just like in ancient Ephesus, there are many people in our culture today for whom an invitation alone is not going to get it done. I believe that it was J.D. Greer I heard speaking about this one time who, who just who made the point that many people today in our culture are just about as likely to wander into a church building as you and I are to wander into a mosque. I don't presume to speak for every single person in this room, but if I were to hazard a guess, most of us in this room probably cannot think of any reason in your life why you would have a reason to go into a mosque. 
right? You, you wouldn't go there if you passed by their sign and it said they were having a pancake breakfast on Saturday morning. You're probably not going to go because of that, right? You're probably not going to go because somebody gives you a card that says the imam is starting a new series next week on seven great parenting tips for teenagers, right? You're probably, that's probably not going to get you in the door. And what we don't realize is that it's the same way with many of our neighbors when it comes to coming to church. They don't have that in their background. They didn't grow up that way. There is no reason they can conceive of why they would ever walk into a church building or ever have the need to do that. And so seeing something on the sign is not going to bring them in. Getting a a card about whatever series I'm about to start is not going to get them in. The the only way that it's going to happen is if some, some believers in Jesus Christ have some gospel conversations with them. It's going to take a conversation or two or ten or a hundred. It's going to take some Christians loving them. It's going to take answering questions and objections. It's going to take doing that kindly and winsomely. And of course, with that said, we need to remember that we will not argue someone into the kingdom of God. We need to remember what the scripture says, that when we share with our unbelieving neighbors and friends, we need to do so with gentleness and respect. But we do need to reason with them. And we do need to persuade them. Like heaven and hell are at stake because they are. But when God's people are doing this, when in a certain city, God's people are beginning to persuade every day with the word of God, when the word of God moves out of just being preached once a week from the pulpit, but it begins to be shared uh, in office complexes and it begins to be shared with neighbors across fences and it begins to be shared across uh, tables at restaurants, when the word of God begins to permeate a society and a city, well, then you know God is about to bring a commotion. He's about to bring a change. Look at verse 20. I love the way uh, Luke describes this. This is another one of his summary statements about how the church is growing. But this is how he puts it. He says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Lord, do the same thing today. As your people go out and as your people share the word, may the word of the Lord grow mightily and prevail in people's lives. We've seen the first surefire sign that Jesus is about to cause a commotion. It's when you see persuasion. The second surefire sign is when you start to see imitation. Because, you know, whenever God is starting to do something in a certain place, Satan will try to imitate what God is doing. That's what he did here in Ephesus. If you look at verses 11 and 12, you'll see where it speaks about how God was working unusual miracles through Paul. Uh, Such unusual miracles that when someone would take uh, the sweaty headband that he was wearing around his head or the apron that he was wearing, probably from when he was working making tents in the early morning or late at night after he was done preaching in the school of Tyrannus, when they would take those articles of clothing that Paul had worn and they would take them to someone who was sick, uh, they would get miraculously better. Now, unlike some charlatans today, Paul, as you notice, was not going around advertising himself as a miracle worker, right? He wasn't saying, uh, you know, he didn't have a commercial on TV selling, you know, headbands for 1995 if you make a donation to his ministry, right? That wasn't what this was about. This was God, as it says, doing unusual things. 
And he was doing unusual things in a city that was gripped by magic and believed in magical items. And so here is God condescending. Here is God accommodating to the knowledge level of the people at that time, working miracles through these articles of clothing so that they would understand that Paul was God's apostle and that they needed to listen to the message that he was bringing. It reminds me of what we read about earlier in Acts, about Peter's shadow, how people were bringing out the sick to lay in the streets so that if Peter's shadow would come by, it would heal them. These miracles were an authenticating sign of who God's apostles were. But it was never about the miracles themselves. It was always about the message of Jesus that the apostles were proclaiming. Well, in Ephesus, there were some Jewish exorcists that saw the things that Paul was doing. They saw how powerful it was whenever he used the name of Jesus, how when he used the name of Jesus, even demons would come out of people. And so they said, you know what? Let's give this a whirl ourselves. And so it says what what they would say in verse 13. They would say to a demon-possessed person, we exorcise you by the Jesus who Paul preaches. And that just didn't work out so well. It didn't work out so well because much like the Israelites in the Old Testament who on occasion used the ark of God like it was a good luck charm, here they're using the name of Jesus as though it were a good luck charm, even though they don't believe in Jesus and though they didn't actually know Jesus, they thought that they could just use his name and have the same effectiveness of the Apostle Paul. That didn't didn't go well for them. And the most comical example of that is what we read about these these seven sons of Sceva who try this out. I love what Alistair Begg said. We should really call them the seven streakers of Sceva. And, And I agree because that's what they are by the time this story is over. And so they try this same line. They go into this demon possessed man's house and they say something like what we just read. They say, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And then I love the reply from the, if you can love something that a demon says, this might be my favorite thing a demon says in the Bible. In verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? I know the name of Jesus, and I have to respond to the name of Jesus, and I know the apostle Paul, and I have to respond to him because Jesus dwells within him, but I don't have to respond to you, and I don't even know who you are. I don't have to listen to a thing that you say. And so then, comically and tragically at the same time, this demon-possessed guy who has supernatural strength because of the demon that lives inside of him uh, just jumps these, like a panther, these seven helpless boys, WWF style. He strips off their clothes. He sends them out of the house bleeding and naked. And I, I love what Matt Chandler said about this. He said, you know, if, you've ever, if you ever wonder whether you've won or lost a fight, he says... If the fight starts and you're wearing pants, but by the time it's over, you're not, <laughs> you, you lost. <laughs> These guys lost. What, what an epic failure of an exorcism attempt this was. This was a big time fail. If they had Twitter in, in Ephesus, this would have been trending on Twitter, right? People have been posting pictures. But as embarrassing as this failure was for these seven sons of Sceva, God used it. Because it served as a striking contrast about their lack of spiritual power and the spiritual power of the name of Jesus when spoken by one of his apostles, like Paul. Verse 17 says, fear fell 
on them all. They realized that the name of Jesus was not a name to be trifled with. The text says the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. As we're going to see, people began to get saved all over the city of Ephesus. But this is one of the surefire signs, church, that we need to be on the lookout for. Whenever God starts to work with great power, whenever he starts to do some unusual things in a certain place, you can take it to the bank. Satan will always try to imitate it. But here's another surefire sign that Jesus is starting to cause a commotion. Not only will you see persuasion, not only will you see imitation, but you'll also see conflagration. Believers will burn up whatever it is that belongs to their old lifestyle. As I said a moment ago, as Paul's ministry in Ephesus went on, he kept preaching about Jesus. A lot of people were getting saved. And verse 18 tells us what these Christians did next. It says, many of those who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Another translation said they came disclosing or divulging some of their sinful practices, things that they had done in the past. And you know, that is always one of the signs that God's spirit is starting to work inside of a person's heart. Because our tendency is always to hide and to cover our sin. Our tendency is to rationalize it, to minimize it, to make excuses for it, to trivialize it, to hope nobody sees it. That's our pride. That's just the, the, the natural way we wanna go. But when God's spirit begins to work inside of a person's heart, they don't care about those things anymore. They don't care who knows about it because God knows about it. And they come and they confess openly the things that they have done and they find healing from the Lord. That's what happened here. Not only were they confessing their sin, they were also clearly willing to turn from their sin, to repent from their sin and to live 100% sold out for the Lord Jesus. And you see that in verse 19. It says, also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So so again, they didn't just confess. They didn't just say, well, yeah, you know, I did so-and-so. But no, they they were willing to turn away from it. They they were willing to to go and and get whatever belonged to their old lifestyle, their pre-Christ lifestyle. And they were willing to literally burn it up at great cost to themselves. Again, magic was so prevalent in the city of Ephesus. Many of these new Christians had been practitioners of magic, or if not that, they at least had in their household a book of spells and incantations, and these books sold for a high price tag. But now that they had come to know Christ, they realized that that all of that stuff didn't belong in their new life following Jesus. And so they said, that can't stay in my house for one more day. I have to get rid of that. <laughs> they didn't want to take it to goodwill, right? They didn't want to give it away to somebody else or, or, or they would have maybe got swept up in the same thing. They said the only right thing to do with this stuff is just to burn it. There's a 400-year-old painting hanging in the Louvre that's called the Sermon of St. Paul at Ephesus. There's a picture of it behind me. And you can see Paul preaching, thundering away, and in the foreground there, people bringing their books, starting to set them on fire. And if you look in the background, you can see more people bringing books and about to add them to this growing pile that's being burned. And it was a big pile because it says here that the value of this 
The pile of books that was set ablaze was 50,000 pieces of silver. Some people have estimated that might be as much as 6 million U.S. dollars today. Now, this cost them something to do this. But again, they knew they were 100% committed to Christ. And anything that was from their old life, anything that might drag them back to their old life, that had to go. It had to go up in flames. Listen to this question that Kent Hughes poses about this story. He said this, quote, What would be burned up today if the Spirit's conviction swept the church? Let me say that again. What would be burned up today if the Spirit's conviction swept the church? It may not be magic books. It may be something else. He continues, I think some magazines would be quietly removed from out-of-the-way desk drawers or certain novels from family bookshelves. Perhaps some television channels would be boycotted. Some people would ask others to pray that they would be set free from whatever is dragging them down. And many would come to Christ for forgiveness of sin and deliverance from the eternal wrath of God. You know, maybe just like in Ephesus, some bonfires need to happen in some backyards tonight where we say, listen, I belong to Christ now, 100%. These things that were for my old life, they don't belong anymore, and they need to go. When Jesus comes to our lives and to our city, he starts a commotion, and there's some surefire signs that Jesus is at work. You're going to see persuasion. You're going to see imitation. You're going to see conflagration. But also, don't be surprised when you see protestation. When you see some unbelievers who are not happy about what is taking place and who begin to protest how the message of Jesus is, in their view, messing everything up. That's what we see in the latter part of this chapter. And before we get there, in verses 21 and 22, there's this little section that tells us about Paul's future travel plans. After Ephesus, he planned to go to Macedonia and Achaia, where Corinth was, and then down to Jerusalem and eventually to Rome. And we know from elsewhere he wanted to go to Rome because from Rome he wanted to start a new mission in Spain. Paul would eventually make it to Rome, but of course not the way that he had planned to. He would get there as a Roman prisoner awaiting trial before Caesar. In verse 22, while Paul is remaining in Ephesus for a little while longer, he sends two of his co-workers, Timothy and Erastus. We know from elsewhere he sent them with a letter in their hands, the letter we now call 1 Corinthians, sent them to deliver it, and also to begin collecting an offering for those who were suffering in Jerusalem at that time. But again, Paul's ministry is not quite done yet. Verse 24, we start reading about this giant commotion that was happening in this city. And it started with a man named Demetrius. Demetrius was a silversmith. Likely he was the head or the president of the Silversmiths Guild or Silversmiths Association in Ephesus. And the silversmiths in Ephesus didn't make their money primarily by making jewelry or by making silver tea sets. They made their money by making these little silver idols, these little replicas of the temple of the goddess Diana or Artemis. 
And Diana, the worship of Diana was what Ephesus was all about. Now, they worshiped a pantheon of gods and goddesses, but for sure, the goddess they gave the most attention to, their patron goddess, was Ephesus, the goddess of fertility. Her image was stamped on their coins. Her image and name were on their important papers. And uh, in their city, they had a temple to the goddess Diana that was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People came from all over the world to this temple to Diana in Ephesus to worship her. And so the worship of Diana was big business in Ephesus. And until Paul came to town and started preaching about Jesus, business had been very, very good. But when, when Paul got there, business started to dry up. And that's what Demetrius says. He gets his fellow silversmiths together and he said, hey guys, you know, this is how we make our living by making this stuff. And uh, most of you probably know you've got a little more inventory left on your shelves at the end of the week now than you used to. And that's because of this guy, Paul. Because he's going around everywhere and he's telling people about Jesus. And now that he's telling people about Jesus, they're not buying our stuff anymore. And I love how he puts it in verse 26. He says, Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. And I love that because Demetrius is 100% accurate in what he says there. He must have listened to a sermon or two from the Apostle Paul in the school of Tyrannus. Because he said exactly that in Athens, and I'm sure he said the same thing here in Ephesus, that things we make with our hands are not gods to be worshipped. That there is one true and living God who made us, who made the world, who made everything in it, and we need to worship him and him alone. And so Demetrius, of course, doesn't care about that. He's just concerned about the bottom dollar. And he throws in a few other arguments to kind of rile his friends up. He throws in some arguments that appeal to their religious pride about Diana. He throws in some things that appeal to their patriotism about the city of Ephesus and its greatness. And whatever he said did the trick because his buddies got all riled up. It says they rushed out into the streets and started yelling, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Verse 29 says the whole city ended up getting into a the ag, getting into an uproar. A huge mob started to form and made their way down the city streets to this giant temple that held almost 25,000 people. They grabbed two of Paul's co-workers, Gaius and Aristarchus, on their way to the theater. Paul heard about that. Paul wanted to go and to speak to them, but the other believers in Ephesus uh, told him not to do it. And even some officials in the city, even though they weren't believers, they were friends of Paul and they urged him not to do it either. They feared for his safety if he ventured into the theater. Verse 32 is a pretty funny verse to me because it's one of the best descriptions of a mob mentality that you will ever read. Look at verse 32. It says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. Isn't that awesome? Some people are shouting one thing. Some people are shouting another thing. Most of them are like, I don't even know why we're here. Are they handing out, is there dessert? Something is part of it. I mean, they don't even know why they're there. Verses 33 and 34, you read about how the Jews put forward this man named Alexander. Most likely it's because the Jews wanted to distance themselves from Paul and what he was doing. They wanted this angry crowd to know, hey, we're not responsible for this. We don't like Paul as much as you don't like Paul. But if that's what Alexander wanted to say, he never got to say it because when they found out he was a Jew, they knew that he didn't believe in their goddess Diana either. And so they shouted him down. And in verse 34, it says, they shouted 
for two hours solid. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Can, can you imagine shouting anything for two hours solid? That's what this crowd did. And the people in Ephesus were so worked up because some of them at least could see that the message of Jesus was changing things. And they didn't like it. They could see that it wasn't just changing a few individual people's lives, but it was actually starting to change the culture. It was actually even starting to change businesses. That some of these people who had come to faith in Christ, because their hearts were different, because they had different affections, different desires, different priorities, they weren't going to the same businesses they used to go to. They weren't even buying the same things that they used to buy because God had done a work in their heart and was changing them. And God has done this many times throughout history. I think about what he did in Wales a little bit more than 100 years ago, the Welsh Revival. You know, eventually, as a result of that revival in Wales, 100,000 people got saved. Many of the men there in Wales who were known as, as drunkards and gamblers completely changed. In fact, someone after the first service came up to me who grew up in that area, and he said, I still meet people who are 70, 80 years old now that talk about how their dad was transformed because of the Welsh revival, what happened there. There wasn't as much business at the bars anymore. In fact, they say in Wales they had to let go some of the police officers and some of the judges because they didn't need them. The crime level was so far down from what it was before because of how many people were getting saved. And I pray and I hope you'll pray with me that God who did that in Ephesus 2,000 years ago and did that in Wales 100 years ago would do it in Melbourne right now. pray that God would get such a hold of people's hearts in our city that not only would individual lives be changed, but the culture would be changed. That there would be some businesses that close. Maybe some bars would close. Maybe some strip clubs would close. Maybe some other things would close because there's not enough business for them anymore. Because God has done a work in their hearts. We have to be prepared that whenever God moves in that kind of a way, whenever the effects of the gospel start to bring about a commotion, whenever some tables start to get flipped over, there's going to be at least a few people who didn't want those tables flipped over. And they're going to protest. Well, in verses 35 to 41, we find the end of the story. After two hours of nonstop chanting, this man who is called the city clerk in modern day terms, he would be much like the mayor of town. He stood up to speak and he quieted the crowd. He reassured them they had nothing to worry about. Their reputation was secure. Their goddess Diana was secure. He reassured them that Paul and the Christians hadn't done anything illegal. He said that if Demetrius and his friends had a case, basically he said the courts are open. Take your case there. Or come back on a day when it's set aside to have a civic assembly, but don't do this. And then he kind of plants the seed that what they were doing was an unlawful assembly, and if the Romans found out about it, they didn't really have a very good excuse for it. And after saying that, that put enough fear into him, fear into the crowd, that they piped down and he was able to send them all home. 
Certainly God used this unbelieving clerk to bring peace to this situation. He used it in his sovereignty to protect Paul, to protect Gaius and Aristarchus, to protect the other Christians in Ephesus. And we need to recognize that. We also need to recognize, though, that what this city clerk said was naive and simply incorrect. Because his basic argument was that the worship of Diana will go on forever. You don't need to worry about that at all. And these Christians are nobody and you don't need to worry about them at all. They're not going to make any difference. Well, here we are 2,000 years later and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is no more. There's hardly a soul on earth that worships Diana anymore. And yet there are millions and millions of followers of Jesus of Nazareth all over the world. He tried to say that the message of Jesus wouldn't cause a commotion, that it wouldn't upset the apple cart. But he was wrong because it always does. In church, that's a good thing. That's what we need. As we personally reflect on this story in God's word today, I know we've been thinking today about our city, the city of Melbourne and our nation and what it would look like for God to bring a holy commotion and bring a revival. And we need to think about that. We need to pray about that. But you know, revival always starts with one. And so let's make this personal before we close. I want to ask you this question, friend. Where does Jesus want to cause a commotion in your life? Think about that question for a moment. Where does Jesus want to cause a commotion in your life? I don't know where that might be for you. Maybe as you've listened to the word of God today, there's an area of sin in your life that you know about. God's been talking to you about it. But you know today it has to go. That it has no place in your life as a follower of Christ. Maybe today you just need to kneel where you are. We're about to sing in a moment, but you can kneel, pray, You can come up to the altar and pray and meet with the Lord and just give that to him. And maybe it's something you've been struggling with for so long. You need to do like the folks in the story did where they humbled themselves enough where they didn't try to hide their sin anymore, but they they confessed it. They went public with it. Maybe there's another brother or sister you need to go to. You can go to them right now during the song. Or right after this service is over, pull somebody aside that's a friend of yours that you trust and say, I need you to pray for me about this area of my life. I've been struggling. I want this out of my life. I want to be able to worship the Lord. I want to have clean hands and a pure heart. I don't know, maybe for you, the commotion God wants to do in your life is not about a sin area per se, but maybe it's just about a weight in your life. Something that's just holding you back. The Word of God talks about that as well. Weights that hold us down. Maybe he wants to do a commotion in you because he wants to use you to greater extent and a a greater effectiveness in ministry than you've ever been used in your life before. But in order for that to happen, there's some, some weights that need to be cut loose from your ankles. And right now, he's putting his finger on, on that area of your life. You can pray right now. Again, come to the altar. Give it to the Lord. Say, God, I want to be all in. If something needs to go up in smoke tonight in my backyard, I want it to go up in smoke. Because I don't want anything to keep me back from you. Maybe the commotion that he wants to bring in your life today is that he wants to save you. He wants to welcome you home into his family. And he does that by, first of all, making us uncomfortable, making us realize that we are sinners. That one day we will stand in front of a holy, righteous God. 
And on our own, we don't have a leg to stand on. But after he makes us uncomfortable, he speaks grace to our heart because he tells us all over his word that he loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for your sin, for my sin, to pay for it in full. And if you'll come today, and you can come and speak with me or one of the other pastors here and say, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want him to do a commotion in my life. I want my life to be changed from this day on. You come. I want to ask you to stand right now as we sing. Whatever you need to say to God, whatever commotion you need to let him do in your life, in your family, in your house, you let him do it right now. You come. God speaks to you.